Appreciate that. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Thank you. I'll, you got it? You, we will figure it out together, you and me. There you go. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you after the service. I know we have some guests here, and I got a chance to meet a couple of you, and I agree with Charlie. I'd love for you to drop by the guest table on the way out and fill out a guest connect card so we can prank call you and send you junk mail. Not just, that'd be pretty creepy. Just kidding. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter. We are going to pick up where we left off in our series of home but not home. Home, because this is the place where we live, we breathe, we play, we work, we bleed, we sweat, we pray. This is, this is our place. And yet at the same time, this is not where our story finishes. This is where we are foreigners or travelers or sojourners, but this isn't where we are residents. And so as we're going through this letter that Peter writes to a Gentile church, it's been very helpful for a lot of us. And I think today is going to be very helpful. And before we even get started, it's good for me to just remind you that the Bible never hands us busy work. It's not a book of busy work where we are given tasks and movements and motions that don't have any value, don't have any importance or anything like that. When God calls us to do something, when he calls us to put something down or pick something up, there is great value in that, even if it seems small. And as a missionary, and if you're a Christian in here today, you are a missionary, you're going to encounter people, and maybe you were one of these people, I was one of these people that saw this as a book of rules given to us by a God of rules that we would follow the rules. And if you did a good job of following the rules, you would get blessings and you might go to heaven, right? If you did not follow the rules or you broke the rules, you would get curses, you might even go to hell. Some of these rules are easy, some of them are not easy. But all of it felt like just more busy work. So when passages like the one we're going to go through today, when they come up, we look at a list of things that we are supposed to put down and a list of things that we are supposed to pick up. And we start to short circuit because we see yet again more busy work. By the way, this is why we're committed as a church. This is why we're committed as operating as what we call a gospel-centered church or a gospel-framed church, meaning that the gospel is not just a story of God's thoughtfulness and his kindness and his gentleness for you through the person of Christ, even though despite you, your failings, despite your intents to fix yourself on your own, despite you at all, it's God's thoughtfulness towards you, despite you, to bring you close to him. Through this Jesus who came to live, die, and live again, giving you his Holy Spirit to live in a great life full of spiritual blessings until the day he comes and gets you and takes you back home. It is a story that saves us, but it's also a story that empowers us, holds us together. It, it, it sustains us. That's what it means to be a gospel-centered church. That we're not just made new by the power of God like a switch being flipped on, but we are actually empowered by the same gospel. To put sin down forever, the life, death, and life reality of the gospel is how we leave rebellion behind. It's how we put sin down. It's how we change. I mean, I want you to just consider, when you walked in here, what you were carrying as a sin. Maybe it's something that's pervasively walked with you for a long amount of time. Something you've been coddling. A sin that you maybe have made accommodations for, negotiated with. Kind of like, I'll, I'll let you have this small room in the house, but if you promise not to leave the room, right? 
I'll accommodate, I'll even build my, my life around you, but you can't ruin me. Maybe it's that for you. Maybe it's something that's caused you a large level of shame. It makes you feel kind of defeated and overwhelmed because you've had no fruit over this your whole life. Listen, my prayer is that today through Peter's words that you will see God in such a way that you treasure Jesus more than you do that sin. That sin. And let me just tell you, change is possible. I know it feels like it's not. It's possible. Maybe you've just resolved to survive with it. You've just partnered with it. You've just thought, I guess this is just the way it is. I'm going to carry this with me for the rest of my life. Maybe I'll get seasons of victory. Maybe it will kind of decrease over time. But I think this is probably my lot. This is what I'll have. Maybe it's just too overwhelming. Let me just tell you, change is possible. It's possible. Let's look at 1 Peter 4. It's a very valuable passage. It's going to do all the heavy lifting for us today. We're going to jump into verse 1, and we're only going to do, I think, 11 verses. Yeah. This is God's word for us today, and you will see Christ, some of you, in a very different way today than you've seen him in the past. Peter says, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here is a rough summary of what he just said. He says, although society is going to hate you for living differently, put sin down. Leave it behind you. Enough of the days of doing what you used to do. And with your old life behind you, pray moving forward. Love moving forward. Be hospitable. Exercise your gifts to the maximum that you can and to the glory of God. Peter is, in fact, telling them to put some things down and pick other things up. That's what he's saying. And he's assuming that the people he's speaking to, these Gentiles, he's assuming that they spent some solid time in idolatry and debauchery, as he says it, right? And think about it. I mean, there's got to be some truth to this. There was no such thing as a churched family whenever this was given. The very first time this letter was read in front of a church, there was no such thing as people who grew up in church. They didn't 
they, they weren't in Awanas as kids. They didn't watch their grandparents worship in church gatherings. They didn't pray over their Thanksgiving meals. All of the challenges they're receiving are first-generation challenges. And so one of the things he's having to tell them is like, look, whenever you change, society's going to be a little bit shocked. Your friends are going to be a little bit shocked, and they'll probably mock you and malign you for it. They're going to be surprised that you don't do the things that you used to do. This is true. It's true today too, though, right? They're going to see you as bizarre, weird. They're going to see you as crazy. Your biblically informed views are going to be seen as going against logic, going against nature itself even. Some of you have probably already felt that. I remember in college whenever I started walking as a Christian, I remember being around the jello shot table and not throwing back jello shots just to hear my friends say, are you some kind of a moron? I mean, you've got to be some kind of a moron. It's free vodka mixed with jello. What could go wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, what, what happened to you? What's wrong with you? You some, you some sort of a weirdo now? And as a young Christian, I thought, no, I don't. I don't think I'm a weirdo, but everyone keeps saying that. Maybe I am a weirdo. I don't know. I don't feel like a moron. I don't feel like a weirdo. This is what he's saying. You need to go ahead and get used to the idea that people are going to see you differently. Then he also stacks on that, that that life is behind you. And you spend adequate time doing those things. Gone are the days of looking over your shoulder, wishing that you could have those old sins back. And why is he saying this? Because that's exactly what we do. I mean, in the back of your mind, have you ever considered what would it be like to have one more fling? What would it be like to let money be my God just for one year? Just for one year? What would it be like just to get drunk one more time? To get high one more time? He's like, stop. Stop. Put it down. Stop looking back. There's nothing for you there but sadness. Put it down and walk away. He's having to encourage them. This is a real struggle that they had. And to be honest with you, I think this would deserve its own Sunday morning. This one little part. Because I think we as a church, we often look over our shoulder with a sadness, with a longing, with a remembrance of what these old idols used to give. And we're convinced in our mind that we had it better back there. Listen. I think of Lot and his family running away from Sodom and Gomorrah as they are being saved from destruction. And then yet she looks over her shoulder longingly, wanting what she had. We do the same thing. Listen, if your addiction right now to sin, whatever it is, if it's more beautiful than Christ, you've not apprehended Christ yet. If what you're mixed up in that you cannot put down is more beautiful to you than Jesus, you haven't seen Jesus yet. You haven't. Now listen, if we read this passage wrong today, the whole 11 verses, if we read it wrong today, you will come away with stop sinning and get your act together, right? And if I teach it wrong, you'll be convinced that that will be as easy as putting a habit down, like stop slouching, all right, or stop leaving your underwear on the floor or something like that. It'll, but but that, that's what we usually walk away with. When I would grow up as a younger Christian, that's what I would hear, a list of things I shouldn't do and a list of things that I should do. But listen, we don't need Jesus to put habits down. What we need Jesus for is to put hungers down, passions down. If I teach this wrong, you can walk away convinced that all you need from me today is a new strategy to replace your old strategy, the one that has not been working, in order to defeat your sin and look more beautiful to Jesus. Like there's a magical plan floating around. 
that will conquer this craving for sin that you've had. I could teach it wrong. And you would walk away and I would find you next week worse off than you are today. Right? I mean, I want to see if you agree with Paul. Stay where you're at, First Peter. We'll put this up on the screen for you. This is the Apostle Paul wrestling with what we're talking about out loud. For you, to, for you to be a part of. And he says this in verse 21 of the 7th chapter. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members. And that means his body parts, his body, his physical being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Then he says this, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man, man, I'm a miserable guy. I can't break this. I'm so screwed up. Wretched, wretched man that I am. Who can fix this? Who can fix this wrestling match that I keep having with sin? You see, Paul gets it. He gets this struggle of Christian growth. He wants to do right. He reads the same Bible that you're reading, and he looks at it and he says, it's good. It makes sense. And yet evil lies close at hand, and flesh overrules him. Like Paul, you and I, we see God's law and we see it as better. I do. I listen to pastors preach. And when I hear them preach the word of God and when I read it in the Bible, it just looks right. It looks better. And when I see other men and other women walk under the admonitions of the Lord, and I, it, it looks attractive to me. It makes sense. It makes sense. And yet sin still tells me that I had it better without God. That actually God is the one that's holding me back. Listen, the strategies that you might be waiting for, they're not going to work. They, they can't contend with an addiction. They can't contend with anxiety. Nobody has ever beaten sin by being smarter. Never been done. Because you don't choose sin with your mind, you choose it with your heart. The human heart wants what the human heart wants. And this is also why very smart people are racked with sin. This is why Solomon himself could not escape the grips of it, the smartest man who ever lived. This is why smart people can be idolaters and cheat on their spouses and overwork, right? So we know it's not just being smarter. Nobody's ever beaten sin by being more disciplined either. It doesn't matter if you wake up at 4.30 and make your bed and drink a bulletproof coffee and warm up with 100 push-ups and, and invest in your stock portfolio before, you know, the kids wake up. It doesn't matter how disciplined you are. I know some very disciplined people who are, again, racked with sin. Nobody's ever beaten the flesh's hunger with a strategy. I could come up with five points, and they can all start with the letter C. I can have a memorable little punchline for you. I can give you a new strategy to attack the day, and that will not stand a chance against your addiction or your selfishness or your unforgiveness or your anxiety or your depression or your anger. I mean, you might start to see a little bit of traction. You learn something new. You, you wake up earlier. You, you read the Bible for 30 minutes a day for a little while. You might, you might. But if you don't deal with the flesh, that new strategy that you're so proud of is just going to relocate the sin. It's going to change the way it looks. It's going to transform it. Why? Because the human heart wants what the human heart wants. And if you starve it over here, it will grow over here. It's the way it works. There's an old guy named John Owen who's been dead for over 400 years. He was an old Puritan 
in the early 17th century, right? And he wrote a book that's probably made him famous. He's written a bunch, but one of his more famous works is called The Mortification of Sin. And right there is where most of you probably put it back on the shelf or back in the Amazon cart, right? Because of the word mortification. It just means to put down, to destroy, to kill, right? And, and, and this is his opus. This is what put him on the map. And he says this about unmortified sin in our life. He says, every unmortified sin will certainly do two things. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor. And it will darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace. Your soul gets darker and it gets weaker, he says. And you know this. You know this. You don't have to be a Puritan to get this. Pervasive sin, it steals our vibrancy. It robs our courage before man and before God. And we know that we have found this place of weakness and darkness of the soul because we've not been able to put a sin down. We know it's happening whenever we catch ourselves trying to make a deal with the sin. If you don't destroy me, I won't destroy you. If you just give me what I need when I need it, I'll let you have this little piece of my life over here. We know we're in this place whenever we try to hate sin without loving God more. We know we're in this place whenever we lean on our own power and our own strategies and our own smarts and our own discipline to beat something supernatural, to beat something inside of us. John Owen, same John Owen, he goes on to say later on in that work that a lot of times we as Christians in the church, we carry our sins to the wrong mountain, carry it to Mount Sinai. It's the wrong mountain. Sinai, if you're, if you're not familiar with the Bible or Old Testament symbolism, Mount Sinai is the place where Moses took God's law and gave it to the people. That happened on Mount Sinai. So it's, it becomes emblematic throughout the rest of the word as the place where God gives a contract or a covenant for people to obey. And if you obey, great things happen. If you disobey, well, the opposite Moses says in Deuteronomy 11, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. This mountain, Mount Sinai, represents the place where life and death hinge on our obedience or performance, on what we do, and we all feel crushed under its weight crushed. And let me just say, you cannot use the law to gauge God's approval of you. You cannot use the law to improve your life to such a way that you become more beautiful to God, more likable to God. The law is an efficient gift. Let me just say this much, right? The law is very effective and then it communicates to you and me where we've gotten off course. It tells us what we do wrong. It tells us where we are wrong. And it's good at doing that, but it is useless in giving us the power to beat sin. It's very good at saying what you're doing right now is wrong. It's good at that. It will not give you the ability to walk out of it. Okay? In fact, Owen goes on to say, a soul under the power of conviction from the law is pressed to fight against sin, but it has no strength for the combat. For instance, just to drill it into 2021 for us, if you're addicted to something online, that could be many things, right? 
could be you're addicted to the markets, you're addicted to pornography, you're addicted to looking at yourself in selfie format, some sort of a social media, you're addicted to forums, you're addi- I mean, there's a million ways for us to abuse the internet, right? But let's just say whatever it is, your flavor of choice, you read in the Bible that it's wrong. Whatever you're doing is wrong. Whatever you're addicted to is wrong. And you, and you feel wrong. And you want to change. If that's happening, then the law has done its work. It's done its work. But it's not going to give you the power to beat that. It's not going to give you a strategy to beat that. It's just going to tell you that what you need to do has got to change. And listen, if you add accountability to your life, maybe you budget your time online, maybe even delete some apps, you've not done anything wrong. But it's not going to fix your hunger. It's not going to fix the passion that's underneath it all. The commands and the laws of God have exposed you, but they cannot remedy you. You haven't dealt with the hunger and the desire underneath the use of the internet or money or food or alcohol or overwork or any of these things, right? You see, putting sin down, or as Owen says, mortifying sin is going to require the hunger in you to change, the passion in you. It's going to require that to change. Listen, I spent a good many years wearing a rut down to Mount Sinai, like many of you, delighting in what I would hear as the pastor would preach it or as I read in my Bible study that morning, but I would find my body waging war against what I wanted, just as Paul says. I would feel crushed under this weight of not being able to change, broken, shamed. I would change my outward appearance and obedience, but I would never address the hunger that was underneath. As Tim Chester would say, it's like pulling the fruit of sin off of the tree and throwing it away without dealing with the branches that are holding it together or the trunk that's even holding the branches. It's dealing with the manifestation of the sin, but not what's behind the sin. I think this is why a lot of people go to a church service just like this. It's why they're clicking on links and watching pastors preach all over the world right now. They feel condemned by the law. They know it. They want to change, they feel convicted, and they yet still feel like they are one strategy away, one service away, one cute little big idea away, one book away, one confession away. Somebody, anybody, tell me how to drop this sin so I look more likable before God. I think books and strategies and confessions are great things, but if that's all it took to change, we wouldn't have much need for Jesus, would we? seems kind of useless if we could do it on our own strength. Not necessary. But there's good news for you and me, really good news. We have a different mountain. It's not Mount Sinai. It's a different one. It has a cross on it. it. sits outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's where they carted off criminals and villains and crushed them under the weight of the law. And yet that is where our sins were crushed under God's view. As Peter says, it's where love covers a multitude of sins. It's where our hero suffered, not just to save you, but to give you power over what's been enslaving you. Not just to bring you close to the Father, but also to empower you to put sin down. Because Jesus perfectly satisfied the law. Let me just remind you, under Moses' dictate that we just read a minute ago, he deserved blessings, Jesus did. He didn't deserve a curse. He was the last person to deserve a curse. But he became a curse so that we would be made righteous. We talked about this in our men's meeting on Thursday morning a little bit. 
By the way, if you're a guy, if you're a man and you would like to be in a men's meeting, we have a few seats left in that. I'd love for you to come up and talk to me afterward because we only have a couple seats left, but we'd love to have you in there. But we looked at Galatians 3. We'll put it up on the screen. Stay where you're at. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here's a fact. Knowing this and the fact that Jesus became a curse for us, that leads us towards change. It leads us towards change, not busy work, not busy work. In fact, there's this great word that's in the very beginning of our passage for today in 1 Peter. It's actually so small, we read right through it and we didn't even notice it. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. That therefore right there is literally the hinge on which the whole passage turns. It's the door for the whole passage. I've heard wise people in school and outside of school say that whenever you see the word therefore in your Bible, you should look to see what it is there for, right? I know it's goofy, but you'll probably never forget it, right, just like I haven't. But anytime you see therefore in the Bible, you have to see what exactly is it there for because therefore is a phrase that connects a cause with an effect. It's a, it's a joining word that says A, B, and C, therefore D, E, and F. But it's not just a nothing word. It has value to it. In fact, Paul does the same thing in Romans 6. Stay where you're at. He says, for death he died. He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, that's kind of a therefore-ish word, right? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, there it is again, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Jesus became a curse for you and for me and suffered to beat our addictions. Therefore, we arm ourselves with the same mindset, leaving rebellion in the past, and exhausting our lives for his glory from here on out, right? And one of the things he says is we're to arm ourselves with the same mind of Christ as he suffered for us on the cross. What does that mean to arm yourself with something? To arm yourself with a piece of knowledge, right? I think it means to not just know it, but to have it at the ready, like an app that is open, right? Just ready for you anytime you need it. If I were to say, by the way, I do not have a gun on me, okay? But if I were to say, hey, I have a gun. There's a difference between me having it, and if you're uncomfortable with guns, pretend I just said pepper spray, right? Work real hard. If I said I have a gun, but it's really locked up in my safe in my house, that's one thing. But if I say I have a gun and I'm armed with it, that's a, that's a very different thing, right? It's at the ready because I'm armed. What he's saying is arm yourself. Don't just know something. Be armed with that knowledge. Have it at the ready. Have it at the quick. Have that app open. There is a difference. We have truth many times and many times we are not armed with it. This is why you can know that God is powerful. I know that God is powerful. I have that truth, yet I'm anxious all the time and I can't sleep. I know God is in control, but I really don't know God is in control. It's something that you know, but you're not armed with, right? Or God is good. You know that God's good. God's good. It's a truth that I know, yet I'm still looking for good elsewhere, I'm looking for good elsewhere. It's something that you know, but you're not armed with it. And he is saying here, be armed with the same mindset and the same thought process that Jesus had as he suffered on the cross. This requires, what he's talking about is a thoughtful meditation on the truth of God. A thoughtful meditation on the gospel. 
It reminds us that we are free from sin's enslaving power, that we can change, that we don't have to obey the passions of our flesh. We don't have to. It's how we build a life of treasuring Jesus more and more and more and hating our sin more and more and more. We meditate on what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus. We read about it. We think about it. We journal about it. We sing about it. We celebrate. We put it in our speech back and forth as we talk back and forth. We apply it to each other. We teach it to our kids. We meditate on it day and night, day and night. This is what it means. It's how we build a different life. Friends, listen, when you catch yourself calculating how much sin you can get away with, which is a real calculation we make, consider the one who became a curse so that you'd become righteous. And then ask yourself, how can I do this? How can I continue to sin like this? You know, Paul had to write to some Christians that had a kind of a goofy question, but it no less goofy than the fact that I hear it still today. Well, what is so bad if grace comes because we sin, then why not just sin more and have more grace come? I mean, if God loves me no matter what, and I can't look worse to him even if I sin, then why not just do whatever I feel like doing? And so Paul writes to them, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Did you see the therefore there? To make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. In partnering with sin, accommodating sin, are we really willing to just add punches to Christ as he suffered? Are, are you willing, are we willing to put our hands around his throat? To mock him? To laugh at him? To add pain and shame to that week of pain and shame that he had? Are we willing to disregard his suffering and the value and the goal of his suffering? Are we willing to do that? The most powerful motive to fighting temptation is to adore the suffering servant who drew us close despite us, despite us, to meditate on it, to think about it, to read about it, to memorize it, to sing, to celebrate. Romans 7, 24, I'm going to go back to the last thing that Paul said. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Screwed up and I don't know what to do. I mean, I keep trying to do good and evil is close at hand. I keep trying to beat this thing and I just keep picking it back up. I can't put it down without picking it back up. Who will change this? Who will save me? Very next sentence. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. Our motivation to stop sinning, it's not going to be found at Mount Sinai. It's going to be found at the cross. And our incentive to live a holy life is not going to be based on fear. It's going to be based on love. Look on the love of God. Look on the love of God. That he'd be a curse to awaken you. Look at how much he has loved you. And when you calculate how much compromise you can get away with, 
Consider David's men. What I mean is I want you to pray for a sharper radar. I know that there's a lot of people that they're struggling with this active, pervasive sin in their life because they've gotten to where they can't see it anymore. They've given so much room to it for so much time, it's not sharp. They've grown calluses. They don't feel like they used to. So that sin has taken root and it's just running its course. And when other people talk about sin, you don't even see it anymore. There's this cool passage in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is my favorite book in the Bible. I know it sounds odd, um, but I love the story of David. And this moment where David is moving from cave to cave while he is hotly pursued, and he is around men that are learning to be criminals less, more and more every day, because that's how we got them. They were criminals. They were turds. They stole stuff, and they punched people, and that's just how we got them. And so he was leading broken, dysfunctional people And he built a really cool team out of that whole thing through God's power. And there was this one day where he says lovingly or longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. He's just just talking out loud. He's just saying some stuff. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Okay, question. Why is that in the Bible? Why is it even in there? Is it just a cool story about some cool dudes doing something cool? Not really. Not really. Even a hint, this is why it's in your Bible, even the hint of a desire from their king pressed them into sacrificial and courageous action. Even the hint. It was not commanded that they go get him some water. He just said that's what he longed for, and they did it. They risked their lives for it. They weren't calculating how little that they could get away with. They weren't trying to find a shortcut. Listen, some of us, are not attentive or so quick to react to the longings and the hopes of our king. In fact, we can't even see him. You know that you can pray for God's spirit to make you painfully aware of where you've grown distant and where you've wandered. Did you know that that's a prayer that God answers? When we're in a dark and weak place, to use Owen's words, we're harboring our hungers instead of mortifying them. When we want nothing to do with giving up our passions and our comfort, while Jesus, a different king, a better king than David, says, oh, that my people would follow my commands, that they would love me, that they would put down their sin and seek me and enjoy me. I'm much better than what this world has to offer. Where have you been calculating and compromising with sin? In fact, let's just drill it down a little bit more. Where have you been looking over your shoulder and longing for the days where God did not restrain your hungers and passions? Where is that? Question, do you understand the gospel? What God has done for you? Can you see it? A bloody cross in a tomb without a dead body in it. Can you see God's love for you? That he moved towards you while you were moving away from him. That he brought you into family at his cost. That he gave you righteousness at his cost. That he gave you grace at his cost. That he suffered at your cost. That he draws you close despite you. And on your worst days, he can't love you less. On your best days, he can't love you more. It's the level of love he gives you. Can you see this? 
Maybe some of you in this room, you've just been carrying your sins to the wrong mountain. Let me just petition you to arm yourself with the gospel, to be thinking and meditating, working with the truth, preaching it to yourself, preaching it to those around you, learning as much as you can about how beautiful this gospel is, actually opening up the Bible and saying, God, I'm not really willing to push this away until you show me a piece of your good news for me. I'm not willing to walk out of this time of prayer until you meet me in this real place. I'm seeking you like you're something valuable, like you're gold or silver, but I'm not budging until you show me your beauty. Can you do that? I didn't even get to the part of this passage that talks about how to spend our gifts, how to be hospitable, how to love each other. There's a whole half of the passage I didn't even get to. But listen, you can't do it without the courage. You can't do it without the peace that comes from not having a dark and weary soul. A courage and confidence that there's no curse over your head. That you have to have. And if you're asking yourself right now, some of you might be, how do I get in a position How do I position myself where I can grow like what he's talking about right now? I think our missional communities, to be more specific, our DNA groups, are probably the best way for you to start posturing yourself for more ready action like this. And I know this seems like something I stick in most sermons. Listen, it's not going to promise that there's a defeat of sin in your life, but it is going to put you in an arena where it's very likely and it's more possible. Right? If you want to struggle with sin for the rest of your life, though, with no victory, try to do it alone. Go ahead. Go at it alone. Or be dishonest with those people that you're doing life with now. Either one will get you in a life cycle of dealing with the same boringly predictable sins for the rest of your life. I think some of us already know this, which is why we are not doing life closely with others. It's not your schedule. Come on. You're not the president. It's not your schedule. Stop hiding behind the calendar. It's that you you don't want to invest that kind of energy in someone else, and you don't want anyone pushing doors open in your life. You don't want anyone investing that energy in your life. But let me just petition you. Get in a relationship with someone in a tight proximity where they know you deeply and you know them deeply. If you want to grow, be known deeply and know others deeply. I think that's best done in community. And listen, some of you, as we're finishing right now, some of you, you are skeptical about Christianity. You're checking it out, not sure about it. Maybe you grew up in it and it's losing its luster, been there. But let me ask you, is your view of Christianity one where rules just need to be followed? Are you trying to uncurse yourself by obeying, by performing well, going to the wrong mountain? Wrong mountain. Jesus became your curse so that you'd become his righteousness. Jesus became your curse. He became what you deserved so that you'd become what he deserved. It's a story of grace. It's a story of the gospel. If you give yourself to it, if you turn and repent and move towards him. I mean, I'm going to pray for you here in a moment. But go ahead and stand up with me. We're finishing this part of our service now. Randy, could you see if somebody would get this? Maybe someone's already gotten these. We're going to take communion together as we kind of segue into our musical worship. And they're going to give you instruction whenever they get up here. Listen, if you're a Christian, you don't even have to be a part of Legacy, but if you're a Christian, I invite you to take communion with us. If you're not a Christian, 
don't worry about it, right? There's nothing magical in this. We got a good deal on Amazon for them. They're nothing special. They're rip and sip cups that have like less than 1.2 ounces of juice and a wafer with zero taste to it, right? That's all it is, and yet it's much more than that for us. This is the common meal that we all gather around every week. This meal right here, which is in remembrance of what God has done, and it's looking forward with longing to what he is doing. So if you need one of these, go ahead and raise your hand, and this good-looking guy is going to hand you one if you want to take one. We've got a few on this side, bud, on the other side. And some of these you have to work a little bit, but I promise it's worth it. You just got to pull. It has two lids. You'll figure it out. Y'all are all smarter than me. You'll figure it out. And what we're going to do is we're going to pray together as a church as we take this. And like I said, if you're a guest or a skeptic or a searcher, I'm going to pray for you as well as we move through this. Don't worry about taking this with us. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. And I thank you that this Bible became something more than busy work and rules to me. But it became a story, a big story of your pursuit of mankind. You are a God of mission. You have a mission, and the church is on it. Lord, that you love us so much that you would pursue us to the extent that you did. Who is, who is man that you were thoughtful of him? But you are. And you found us all misbehaving. You found me acting like a turkey. You found me doing everything that I was taught not to do. You found me doing everything I knew not to do. And yet, even at that moment, you said, I love him, totally despite him. Lord, that your gospel to us is that you love us even though we've tried to fix our own situation without you. You love us even though we just don't love you back. You love us. And when you call us to yourself, you make us family. And we get to celebrate that. And Father, you tell us that when we take this communion, we do so in remembrance of you. And so, Lord, as we take this wafer that just represents a broken body, it's more than just a broken body that it represents. It's a body that was crushed under the weight of a law we could, no, we could never fulfill. We can't even make it out of the gate without breaking this commandment, that regulation, this law. We, we can't, not for one day, not for one minute. And yet you did it perfectly. And you were crushed under the demands, the penalty, so that we would not be. So we take this in remembrance of you. And Lord, although that this is just normal juice, it celebrates something that is not normal. Something that is not ordinary. That is your work for us on the cross. The blood was spilt on that cross. Blood was left on that cross. It was perfect blood. Blood of one who satisfied all the demands. Blood of one who became a curse so that we would become righteous. It's not a fair trade. It's nothing fair about the gospel at all. There's nothing fair about grace. There's nothing fair about it. Yet you pursued us. You did not give us what we deserved. You did give us what we did not deserve. And for that, we're thankful. So we take this juice in remembrance of you.
And so, Lord, we thank you for ministering to us in this moment. And we pray right now, Father, that your Holy Spirit would show us with a glaring intensity where it is that we've been harboring sin in our life, where we've been tolerating sin, where we've been dishonest with ourselves and dishonest with others, where we have harbored and collected sin, making a deal with sin, cohabitating with it, partnering with it, investing in it, and have maybe just gotten so dull that we don't see it like we used to. We just ask that your spirit would not just show us what it is, but give us the power to put it down. That your spirit would remind us and refresh repeatedly in different ways, in fresh, in new ways, the story of God for us. Lord, I'm unsatisfied leading in a church that just hates sin and sin more without loving you more and more and more. So that's what we ask for, is a church that is just in love with you, in love with you. The sin becomes distasteful because our diet is changed. And Father, I pray for those in this room and those who are watching online, who are just checking this out. They're likely to find themselves where I found myself many years ago. Just a God of rules giving us a book of rules and a whole lot of busy work. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would change our hearts to where we see differently and we respond differently. There was a day where you took my heart of stone out and you replaced it with a heart of flesh where I could feel. I could feel and I could respond. And that's what we're asking for now. Not just in legacy, but in every, every place this morning. That you would change hearts. Lord, we love you and we're so thankful for what you've done. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Listen, if that's you and you want to talk to a pastor or somebody before you leave about what it looks like to be a Christian, what it looks like to live this new life, I want you to come up and find me. It's going to take some courage from you. You don't know me and I might not know you. But I want you to just know I'm not going to cook you and eat you. I'm going to talk to you. I'd love to work through this with you. So before you leave, I want you to come and find me. All right.